Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Sarah. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi Shikoya, F-E-M-I, and I'm one of the elders here. Um, today's scripture reading will be from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, um, on page 1852 in your pew Bible. Um, as you're flipping there, we memorized this verse last year, this passage last year. So you'll hear me make some changes. We took a version that we think is a little bit more accurate to what um, Peter's actually trying to communicate here. So listen, if you'll hear those changes, just follow along. You'll be able to keep up, I promise. Which might be bold of me. From verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may be able to participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord, written for his people. Thanks, Femi. If you're a visitor with us this morning, this is going to be very different than normal, what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to do the first part of a two-part sermon. The second part will be in two weeks. And um, yeah, so it'll end just before we start the the fall series. Um, So as of this last June, Alexi and I and our family have been here at High Point and part of the High Point family for eight years. And when I got here, my children were seven, five, and two, and non-existent. And, you know, now I have a 15-year-old studying driver's ed, God help me. And I mean, I mean that in the, like, most devout way. Um, and, you know, on the couch, and, and my 13-year-old you know, is, you know, mouthy. And I have an 11-year-old who wants to fish every day, and a five-year-old who is, as assertive as you would expect, a fourth youngest child who's five years younger than all the rest to be. Um, but, I mean, in terms of the life stages of the earth and eternity, that eight years isn't very long, but, you know, you, you get up in years a little bit, and it's like a full life stage of your life. You know, I went from, like, the dad with young kids to the dad with kids where we're starting to talk about how many years we've got left with them, you know? And so, um, it's important to, like, stop and reflect and review on your life. And, and that's not so much true with things that are all spectacle. Like, you know, you, you know, people usually don't sit around and like reflect on how their favorite TV show is going. Because 
they're supposed to be like all spectacle all the time. Like you can feel if whether or not it's going well. But it's, it's the ordinary things. It's things where you do the same thing day in and day out, out of conviction, that are important, but they're like normal, like laundry. That, I mean, I don't know if you'd ask how laundry's going, but like your marriage, for example, like if you've got, if you're married to somebody for, you know, your whole life, it's, you know, you're doing the same stuff day in, day in, day, in, day out, and you gotta, at some point, you gotta get in there and be like, so how is this going? Or you've gotta reflect on it, and you've gotta, and you've gotta review, and you've gotta decide what, whether you like what's going on or not, right? And so, um, if, if you don't reflect on things after a while, the, mon- the monotony of them, right, if it's a repetitive thing, after a while you start feeling the monotony without feeling the encouragement, right? Like if you're a parent and you've been, you're trying to parent your way along and it's just tough every day. It's like it's another argument, it's another thing, it's another meal, it's more dishes, it's like another thing every day. And that's all you, that you just keep experiencing that. And you don't reflect like how are these kids changing? And you know, are we, are we doing better on this thing or worse on that thing? And there's, you know, if you stop and you look at it, oftentimes there's a lot of encouraging stuff to see, but that you wouldn't normally see because it's just kind of in the slow flow of time. It's like celebrating that a tree is growing, right? It doesn't happen every day, but I've been in my house eight years, and one of the things I did, because I I believed God wanted me to sort of plant roots in Madison, I, in a cliche way, like literally planted trees on my property. And they're, they're apple trees, and they're eight years older now, and they're a lot bigger than they were. And I can see that when I stop now and I prune them, right? For the last seven or eight days, Alexi and I have been um, retiling about half of the ground floor of our house ourselves. We're not of sufficient means that we can just pay somebody to do it. And so um, it's an interesting process, right? Because you spend like the first 20 or 30 percent of it like tearing your house apart. I mean, it looks like you're trying to tear your house down. And then there's another 20 or 40 to 40 percent of it where you're like, it looks like you're doing bad repairs. Because you're basically screwing down plywood or you're creating a new subfloor, you're doing this or that thing. In fact, the, the, the plywood we had to put down was so thin, it was only a quarter inch. And so in order to make sure it doesn't warp, we had to put so many screws in it. it like it looked like a 10-year-old got a hold of a, like a power drill and a pound of screws. And because um, that is actually literally what happened. But it was also for the purpose of screwing down the things efficiently. And even when we got done, we had the rain the other day and some of it was warping even between the things. We had to put more screws in it, right? And it just looks like somebody who didn't know how to fix things got a hold of something, right? And then, even when you start tiling, it's all messiness. It's like you got mortar and thin seed. It's, it's on your arms and in your fingernails. and It doesn't even look good, and you're spending all this time getting the lines right. And, you know, and then you finally get some rows, and you're going. And after a while, it, you know, you start to be like, okay, wait. This is going to look good. Right? And about that time, you, you're, you know, you might only be halfway done, but— Hopefully it looks better. And, but you need to stop because about the time my wife was ready to kill me, we, you know, we could look at the floor and say, hey, this is going to end. It's going to look good. We're going to accomplish what we're fighting for. Let's go mix another barrel of that disgusting stuff. Right? And we did. And that is what life is like. And, and I was thinking about this while I was cutting tile at midnight the other night, that I mean, that's really all I've—that's—like, that's all pastors do, man. We're t- like, we're, it's blue-collar work, man. We're laying tiles. It's—we're pounding nails. It's the same thing. It's, it's craftsmanship. I mean, I mean, think about the—we're we're compared to shepherds, right? That's what a pastor—the word pastor literally means. Shepherd. You just sit around while sheep mate. You know, like, that's 
you just keep them alive, you keep them safe, and then like biology kind of takes care of the rest, you know? And so, so sometimes you just got to stop and say, okay, wait, what's really going on? Because otherwise you could actually be part of the body of Christ or you, you could actually be in your own Christian life and you could feel pretty discouraged even when pretty good things are happening, but they're just happening too slow to be spectacles. And if you don't stop and reflect and review, you won't get the encouragement you actually require. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so how have things been going? Right? Like, I recognize church isn't your whole life. Hopefully Jesus is your whole life. I mean, it literally says in Colossians, Christ, when Christ, comma, who is your life, comma, comes. Right? And then it goes on and says more about Jesus. But church isn't your life, not being here every minute. But this is a big part of your life, hopefully. This is the body of Christ gathered. We are the local church. How's it going? You know? Um, if we were all business people, we would think things were going really well. All the analytics are good. Right? Attendance has grown every year for eight years. Budgets have grown every year for eight years. The last budget was approved unanimously by the church. Um, about a third of our church is between 20 and 33 years old, which means as a church we're getting younger. I wish I could like transfer that to those of you who are older, but I don't know how to do that. Um, but very few churches in America are growing younger. Our gender ratio is almost exactly 50-50. That's almost unheard of in the American church. Most churches are 60-40% women or more. Um, Gene and Kelly, who are in charge of overseeing the building and the scheduling, tell me that we've never in their 10 years had more activity going on here. Um, we have a growing and great staff team. When we did the survey this last year, there were 14 zip codes that had 10 or more respondents. And another couple dozen or, or something. I want to say it was like 50 that had at least one. Which is a lot. I mean, like it means that we're kind of a regional church, that we live all over Dane County and even beyond. There's some people that drive more than an hour just to come to church here, right? You wouldn't tell at this moment in August, but you will in a couple of weeks probably, right? And when we did that survey, 58% of people who took it said that they had invited somebody to High Point in the last year. Now, we don't know if they invited non-Christians, but they invited somebody. They were sufficiently not ashamed of their church such that they invited someone, right? Which is good. It's generally a good sign, right? And all that is good, and I'm glad for all of that. And, but generally speaking, if that's, if that's as much as we look at, generally what that tends to grow in people's hearts and churches is pride. Because it just means we're better than the next guy. Like, it's kind of like, we're in Madison. How are we doing in the church competition? We're like third or fourth. I mean, that's just the dumbest possible way. To, just, just all the fire, all the desire to accomplish something just leaks out of your system, and you're like, well, we'd get the bronze maybe. You know, it's just— and so a couple of months ago, the staff and elder team went on a retreat together. It was the better part of two days, but it was about 24 hours together. And we, we didn't really do much programmatically. We just, we ate, we prayed and sang, we played some games, and we talked with each other. Is basically all we did. Which is time well spent. And so part of things we talked about was, so we're all in the church, like the elders are all spread throughout small groups and different ministries, and this 
the staff are all doing different things. And so he says, how does it feel like the church is going? Like, as, as we go out and we, we mix among all the folks that are here, like, what's going on in people's lives? What does it seem like is happening, right? And then they said, they said, and some of the stuff is just their observations. Like one, one person said, and everybody agreed on this, you know, six, six years ago, right when the service was over, it was like a movie ending not a Marvel movie where people are waiting for the scene at the end of the credits. I mean, just like a normal movie, okay? Like, people just get up and leave. And he said, now, it's like, we, ha we have to be like, hey, can you shut the light off when you leave? Or, like, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Or, like, we got to kick people out of the sanctuary so that, the, so that, like, you know, Iglesia y Restacion y Vida can come in and start their service. And, you know, stuff like that. And so— that's, that's a good sign. Another person said, in our congregational meetings, in all of our committee meetings, all the places where people have to get together to decide on stuff, he said, over the last five or six years where I've been involved, there's just less contentiousness. Right? Like, I don't know if you've ever been to a congregational church voting on a budget. They don't—it's not unanimous. Okay, that's, that's not what happens. Another person said, um, they said, our new member interviews are really actually pretty impressive. Because everybody who becomes a member of High Point has to sit down and do an interview with an elder and another person. And, and like explain how they've become a Christian and why they want to be part of the local church and what they believe. And what they were like, these people are serious business. Like even the new Christians, the new Christians, like they don't know what they're doing yet, but they are serious about Jesus. And some of the people who have been Christians, like they, they're asking us doctrinal questions and they're like, they're, it's encouraging that the quality of people and the quality of faith in those people Another person said, we're much more outward focused. You know, eight years ago, we were struggling to pay the bills and keep the lights on and just—we had to be about high point all the time. And now, like, 20 cents on every dollar, somewhere between 20 and 40 cents on every dollar is going out of here. To some other ministry, to some other investment, to invest in the saving lives and saving souls, internationally, locally. Our—just our missions giving is—, is Hopefully next year we'll get up to 15% of every dollar that comes in here. And that doesn't include special giving or people's, people's private giving or benevolence. None of that's included. And that's just missions, international ministry. Ministries led by volunteers are doing well, and also volunteers show up. I don't know if you realize this, but when people volunteer for things, normally they don't come. Right? They'll, they'll be like, hey, would you want to work in the nursery once a month? And they'll go, yeah. And they don't want to say no. So they say yes. And then they just don't come. Or they call in sick every time or, you know, something like that. And what they've noticed is over like the past seven years, increasingly, not only do more people volunteer, but they actually like do it. Like if they want to, like it's a duty, like they have character. It's amazing. And that's not common. There's a lot of churches that try to get 40% more signups for volunteers than they need so that they'll have 80% of the volunteers that they need. There are some other things. Those are the, some of the key ones. I have another list that are all positive too because I don't know if some of you don't know me very well, but um, personality profiles label my personality as the improver, which basically means this. If you do something 95% right, what stands out to me is the 5% you did wrong and how we could change it. Yeah. So imagine being one of my daughters, you know, <laughs> or son, right? Um, but 
But I believe if you don't reflect on what is good, you get discouraged, right? And so I've seen consistent baptisms every year, right? Would I like to see more? Sure. Would you like to see more? Yes. But are people getting baptized every year? Yes, right? Um, I see great elders leading the church for eight years. We've had a great elder team. Bill, Bill Lurch fixed that before I ever got here. And we've continued to have a sufficient number of men willing to lead and willing to serve and willing to visit and willing to do what it takes. And also, the last 14 months, Alexi and I are, Alexi's in my small group has been taking a group of 16, 20-somethings through elder training. Um, I didn't think any of them would probably be elders of High Point because of how Madison is. Everybody's leaving every year. But um, part of being a teaching church was we had been training pastors. My first four years, I focused just on training pastors. Then I realized if we really want to affect the church in all of America through just one church, we need to train people to be elders. We can, we can train 200. We can train 2,000 elders in 30 years. That would, t- that would, t- that would be, that would ma- be majorly touch probably one or two churches in every urban center in America and many second tier. This church could do that, right? And so, and, and this, that's also the worst thing about pastoring. I mean, think about this for a second. What do you think is the worst thing about being a senior pastor? Have you ever thought about that? What do you think is the worst thing? Because I thought about it. <laughs> and like most people, most people say, because um, they assume I like studying the Bible, writing the sermon stuff. So they're like, I bet, I bet I know what it is. I bet it's like when you have to confront people because they're like sinning or something, right? What we call church discipline. When it's like a public sin, you have to like say, look, you got to quit doing that or you can't be here. And, um, but no, that's not really it for me because I kind of like conflict. I have to not like conflict just because liking conflict is ungodly. You know what? I just, I don't mind. I'm just really disagreeable. And so if people don't like me, I usually don't care that much. Right? The, the, actually, the, and I don't think, I don't think—see, the, the kind of problem you want in your life is the kind of problem where the better things get, the worse that problem gets. That's the kind of problem you want in your life. The, the, the better things get, the worse that problem gets. Okay, that's my biggest issue with senior pastoring. The thing I hate the most about being a senior pastor is walking through these halls or walking through our barbecue and—am I about to die? And seeing all these people I wish I got to be friends with that I'm never going to get to be friends with. When they have a crisis or when they need advice, they're going to come and talk to me, right? But I'm walking by a hundred smiles, people enjoying each other, have interesting conversations, laughing, and I don't get to—I don't get to be friends with 680 people. And it's frustrating, and I hate it. And the more people who serve Jesus here together, the worse that's going to get. It's never going to get better because I'm still going to be spatially limited. You know what I'm saying? All right. Let's see if I can open this. And we're back. Are we back? Great. So, I've seen that. I've also seen, um, I've seen a lot of, um, engagement in our more mature or older generations. So, uh, I think it was still last year sometime. I don't think it was two years ago. There was an older woman in our church. I think she was 82 or 83, and she had a pretty severe stroke. 
And so she was in the hospital for a while. She got moved to a nursing home. And I'm a—so I'm a pastor, so I believe in—I believe in Christ, and I believe in human nature. And I believe, sadly, that even among Christians, human nature wins out way too much. And so when you move an older person to a nursing home, a nursing home is by definition where you park humans that you don't think can do anything for you anymore. It's what it is, right? I know people are like, Nick, I learn. I get something everywhere I go. Yeah, guess what? And you don't visit nursing homes, most of you who say that, right? It's not real. We don't really believe that. And so I thought what would happen was she'd get forgotten in like a month or two. But people, some people would visit her, but after a while, it would be like, I would, I would have to send elders, like, on certain, like, rotation, and we would visit her, and that, right? Well, lo- what Lloyd tells me, and what I've seen in the guest book in her room, is that this is, like, more than a year later. What her daughters tell me is that she gets at least, on, on average, at least three visits from High Point friends a week. And, um, and her, and her book usually has at least three other people signing in, and we think that some people just visit her pretty regularly, and they've just stopped signing in. Right? And here's, here's what you need to understand. You have to understand this. That is so much better than 5% growth. Do you understand that? Do you understand there's—I mean, it's just nothing—there's nothing sweeter than disinterested, non-transactional love. Because, like, if we go f- grow 5%, we don't know why that happened. It could be that, like, I wrote some better jokes that year. It could be they liked the, like, the little, like, t- thing that Nicole does with her voice when she sings. It could, like, it could be, you know, that, you know, some more people moved in because, like, Epic hired some more people. And some of those are going to be Christian. Some of those are going to go here. You know, it's just—you have no idea, Right? But when people visit people who can't do anything for them, and not even to accomplish anything, just to be there and give them some human contact out of nothing but recognizing the human need for existing, and their existence being recognized, and there to be just some relating, that is evidence of something supernatural. Do you understand? A growing church is not necessarily evidence of something supernatural. But a year later, a church visiting an old woman who you can barely hear whisper if you put your face on her nose. That's supernatural. That encourages me. When I wonder if my life of shepherding will have affected through the grace of God anything in the lives of people— that's what makes me believe that maybe what I'm doing is accomplishing something, that God might be using me. He might be changing us. He might be using you. That real transformation could be happening. Because that only happens for substance. I've seen a lot of younger people stepping up to get married and to receive children from their own fertility, and from across the world, some of them, and parent. And this, this is a world that seems difficult. The culture around us is not going to help you form your children the way you want to form them. And 
people generally think there's just too many people on planet earth anyway. And to have children and to get married another person you can't control who may betray you worse than anybody else in the world ever could. But for you to believe in the grace of God in them and the grace of God in you and the worthwhileness of coming together and the meaningfulness of the complementary nature of the genders, that men and women think each other are insane and they are meant for each other, and that in that place is where we ought to raise a new generation and relief, release life beyond our death. To believe that that is worthwhile and to embrace it before you've squandered all your youth and energy, I, I think is good. And I've also seen single people who have not been able to find a suitable spouse or aren't particularly interested in one, but recognizing that the freedom and, and, and openness in terms of responsibility that creates, that they can do things other people don't get to do, who have direct domestic responsibilities. And I've seen people do stuff. Um, there's, there's three of them, actually. I just got asked to take over a volleyball team, and I'm not very good at volleyball. I can do this, the coaching stuff, but the technical stuff I'm not as good at. And, and there's these three single people like, yeah, I'd love to coach those girls. I'd love to turn your—they got one win last year into a winning team. Yeah, let's do it. I was like, yes. Yes. So that's not, obviously not a really spiritual example, but it's, it's spiritual. <laughs> those girls' lives matter. You can see this in numerous partnerships. Um, many of you know this about me, that I do not believe in church branding. I believe that you can have a logo, and you can have a church name. That's about as far as it goes. You don't press your logo and your brand in the city. Because the, the church must rise. All the churches of every ethnicity, of every number of people, no matter where the pastors got their education, if they believe in Jesus, and in the gospel, and in the scriptures— and in the calling that we have in them, then we take hands together and we try to make them all rise together. And so over the course of eight years, we have increasingly engaged in partnerships that are not denominational, but that are with gospel-believing churches. And they're, they're across idioms of ministry. Some of them are with charismatic churches. They're across ethnic and racial lines. They're across theological differences, but still related in the gospel and the scriptures. And so— um, so, for example, Lutheran Social Services, which is the main refugee relocation service in this area, right? We are, we're working with them. We couldn't work with the evangelical one out of Wheaton because it's too far away. You've got to be within 100 miles. So we worked with the Lutherans, and they came back to us recently, and they were like, so High Point Church is our model refugee relocation ministry in this region of Wisconsin. And that made me feel bad for refugees, you know? But, but actually, I know some of the people who are involved in that ministry, and they love cross-linguistic and cross-cultural relationships. And they love getting in there and learning about new cultures. And they love getting called at like three o'clock because the person has to be at the DMV at four and they haven't filled out the form yet. And they, like, they love, they love that stuff. And I've sat down with our Iraqi family and our West African gentlemen and some of these people who've come as refugees. And I've said, so how has this church been for you? And they're like, I, I can't even begin to tell you what this church has done for me. I, I never thought in a million years we would be the bottle refugee church in this area. That's crazy. Orchard Ridge is another example. Remember like 11 years, 11 years ago, like 11 months ago or 10 months ago, we tried to get people to sign up to read and be tutors at Orchard Ridge School, right? For kids that don't read so good, right? And so 
we did the sign up and we got something like 32 people signed up. And so then we gave the list over to the public school system. We said, let's get the, let's get the background checks in so we can get people in the classrooms, right? And it sat where all the other volunteers sat for the rest of the year and there were no background checks done. And of course, I was going crazy because as a pastor, you know how a pastor feels. Okay, I just like dropped my credibility to get these signups for you and you, like, you did what with them? right? And Becky was going crazy too. The principal is just like, ah! So then Lloyd, so Lloyd spent months working, like calling and working with the administrative people. Like, okay, we need to get these things through. We're going to do signups again right before school. We want people to get in these schools. We got to get the background checks done. Do you need us to like pay money for the background checks to happen, right? And so then Lloyd starts calling through the list because he wants to call all these people who signed up and be like, would you still volunteer? I know we didn't, but there's a new school year coming up, right? So he calls them and like, do you know what a bunch of them said to him? They're like, Lloyd, we're already in the school reading with kids. <laughs> they just they did it on their own. They didn't hear from us. They called up the school. The school's like, well, you don't technically need a background check if you're reading in the classroom with everybody else. It's only if you're going to be one-on-one with a kid do you need a background check, which is what most of them do anyway. And so some portion of the list, I think he said something like a third, were already there. Okay, now listen. God help me, I love low-maintenance Christians. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> So great. But it's not just about—that's that's the past—not the, the, the pastor. That's the, the man, Nick Gibson, saying, I love, because it makes my job easier and my work easier. But the pastor who's supposed to stand in the stead of Christ and speak to you, speaks to you says this, I love low-maintenance Christians because there's only one way you get low-maintenance Christians. It's if they're high-substance Christians. High-substance Christians become increasingly lower-maintenance Christians. And people who sign up for something, they hear nothing from who is supposed to lead them, and they go and do the thing without being told. <laughs> yeah. The Faith Place, African American church on the east side of town that we, we've worked with in Sun Prairie, they, um, they had some stuff they couldn't get done, and their roof was leaking in the monsoons we were having. Remember that? Yeah. They're trying to have church in that. And City Sun Prairie was going to shut them down because they didn't have some dirt in the right places and they didn't have some trees planted in the right places. And they had been told two years in advance, but they were trying to get it, you know, they were trying to negotiate it. Finally, Harold called me. He's like, man, they're going to shut my church down. (laughs) He's like, can you help us? And so people from his church and people from our church and Mike Hale's tractor showed up and moved tons of dirt and rebuilt planters and moved stuff around and they got their trees planted and they, they got their roof fixed because we made a five-digit donation to make sure that happened. And they're all set. Right when they finished, there was an explosion in Sun Prairie. You remember this? Right? Which is a tragedy, right? It's, it's bad, right? And God tends to use crazy stuff for good. You know what happened? They had to shut down a couple of streets because of that and reroute like a third of Sun Prairie's traffic by their church. So now they're having church outside which just got landscaped. I didn't know there was going to be an explosion. I wish that, like, I wish I could tell you I had a prophetic dream. (laughs) And in that prophetic dream, I saw this explosion and these, like, dolphins swimming in this moved river. And I thought that that was a symbol of people, like, that would be great. Here's what happened. I spent six years building a relationship with my friend Harold. Right? We're friends. I trust him, and he trusts me. He was in kind of a sticky spot. He didn't have anyone else to turn to. He called me. I'm his friend. I'm glad to help. I called you my friends. 
and say, hey, let's go work over there. And then I went on vacation to Utah. <laughs> right? And I get this text from him. He's like, hey, it's happening. And then I look on Facebook and there's pictures of High Point people and Faith Place people landscaping their church, getting it done. Same thing with um, Crossroads Church. We partnered with them for the work we're doing in the Dominican Republic. Same thing with Rios de Agua Viva and, um, okay, Iglesia Restoración y Vida. That both, they're both Latino churches that meet here. But we've done more together. How many, how many people know what ICS is? Anybody know what ICS is? Like four of us? Okay, great. So ICS is Impact Christian Schools. It didn't exist last year. Now it does. It's a, it's a school system that has been created in the city of Madison by the teaming up of three churches with schools. High Point Church and High Point Christian School. Lighthouse Church and Lighthouse Christian School. And Abundant Life Christian School, which is part of City Church. The reason for that was we're all working together enough now that it's not just about who's running what. We needed something more, something more cooperative. And because a bunch of other churches wanted to start schools. And a bunch more parents now are increasingly wanting Christian education for their children. And there's vouchers available. See, when I came here eight years ago, there were not vouchers available for any family that wanted a Christian education for their kid. And so I actually heard from some people at High Point Church. They said, I had people come to me and say, be careful how much you push High Point Christian School, even though it's a ministry of the church, because I pay tithes and offerings to this church, and yet I can't afford to pay the tuition to send my kids there, though I wish I could. Right? And so it's not for everybody. But Diane's vision from the very beginning, Diane Cook, was to provide a Christian education for every child whose parents wanted to provide one for their children. And it was impossible. It was impossible. So we just did everything we could when we could do it. Started with partnering with ALCS. We partnered with them for a while. Got that school kind of going back again, right? We got to meet Marcio. We were talking with him, doing this, trying to grow a school. We got in a, we got in a fight about who to hire for our principal. Most of you probably didn't know about this conflict. There's significant conflict over who to hire for our, high, for our school, for our principal. That actually turned out really well. All that conflict produced maybe the, one of the best hires our church has ever done with Chuck Moore. Chuck Moore has run voucher schools in Milwaukee. He has all the resident knowledge. Meanwhile, Lighthouse Church was developing all the structures and systems, learning all the ins and outs of the government system of the voucher schools, because their school is completely a voucher school. Meanwhile, they're also one of the best schools in the state in terms of academic turnout of kids. Their kids are doing better than almost anybody else in the state, and they're only educating in three languages, so, Right? Yeah, the average African-American kid who goes to Lighthouse School does their education in English and Spanish and then takes Chinese Mandarin for a foreign language. And in math, they're beating everyone. Right? And so now we've got a guy who like ran the voucher system and who knows all the people with the big money to pour into schools in the whole country working with Marcio and Tia, who, like, it's all coming together. I wish I could tell you that I had a prophetic dream. Where, like, there were these, like, big boulders that had to move together, and an angel came down and was pushing them together. And, and like, I'm not making fun of that. Like, honest to God, I wish I had had a prophetic dream, okay? And other people do, sometimes. All we did was lay tile. Do you understand the point here? 
all we did was lay tile. We just said, okay, I think this tile goes here now. It's not about us. It's about the church in all of Madison. It's about Jesus being known. It's about this whole city knowing him by whatever means is in our, in our hands. Whatever tools on my belt I'm going to use to screw or hit or saw something, and we're going to move forward and be faithful, right? And so these things, God, we fling the string and God somehow weaves them together. If you have the right attitude and integrity. See, here's the thing, you guys. Listen. Marcio Sena, I believe, is a man of integrity. Harold Rayford has shown me over six years that he's a man of integrity. Right? I'm learning more about Pastor Pedro every day. I've only known him for about a year. But all of his actions, he shows that he's a man of integrity. So whenever disagreements arise or frustrations arise, either, either because of our different church's finances or our ethnicity and our assumptions based on our backgrounds, or whenever things start to come up, you see, we're getting years now of believing in the integrity of each other. And so we can overcome the obstacles. And we can build together. But if there isn't that there, if we don't have people of integrity, we can't trust across lines of distrust. Right? We can't do that. We can't, we can't write checks for five figures and give it to another church that's supposedly our competitor. If we don't trust them, and trust takes time, you gotta lay tile, man. You gotta have every action has to have integrity. Every single one. And that's true for our church. It's true for everybody in your life you want to trust you. If you want to combine with anybody to build anything, to do anything more than what you can just do yourself, every moment has to have integrity. I've seen this with CareNet. I've seen this with Hope in a Future. Our youth were down there. Voted again one of the best in Madison for the care of, care of the frail elderly. Our teens were down there working and having fun. I'm always surprised I go to the CareNet Banquet, which is the su financial support banquet for um, the ministry that, that takes care of moms with unexpected pregnancies and who are having their children. And I go there, and for the size of our church in this big city, we are ridiculously overrepresented. I, can, I never can believe how many High Point people care to come out for that and give to it and, and care about that. Though, though um, we don't have a bunch of their staff that go here. It's way on the east side of town. Most of us aren't directly involved with the ministry, but many of us have convictions about life and about the dignity of unborn children, and we recognize that if you don't do something, that it's not—it still, it still has integrity. You don't have to necessarily do something to believe the right thing about something, but man, it helps other people believe you really believe it when you do something about it. And I'm always so—I'm always so encouraged. I was at um, Upper House this last week, which is a ministry that's down on campus that tries to reach out to the immediate campus community and, and like thought and business leaders in the area. And um, the Global Leadership Summit was there, which is the, this big international leadership summit. And I was, I was the security volunteer. And so I went into the, into the um, area and like that— Upper House is a campus of a different church. Like another church has one of their services in there. It's their campus. And I walk into that room and it's like, hey, Pastor Nick, hey, Pastor Nick, hey, Pastor Nick. Hey. And, and it's not like the usual suspects. It's all like high-flown people I don't even hardly know, you know? And so I'm chatting up all these people and I was, 
I was so surprised. Because like, this is in the middle of the week during the work day. And these were people who have jobs. Who had taken time off to be at this thing to serve other people who are not part of our church. Some of whom were not Christians. Learning about business leadership from a Christian perspective. And so I could go on about that. Also, I don't know if you know this, but in the area of benevolence, giving to the poor, outside of our budget, right? Like we have an envelope um, every fourth week where we do, when we do communion, we also give money that is specifically for the poor and for nothing else. On top of all the other stuff, this church gives tens of thousands of dollars every year just for benevolence. And we don't just like shake the money out on the street. I mean, when people come to us, Dietrich Grun actually goes—he's like our pastoral social worker. He goes over their budgets. He'll go over like where they, where they could get other resources, what food pantries they can utilize, and so on. And then if we give them money, it's just to close the gap on something the government won't pay for or whatever. So it's often like a light bill or a thing like that. And so we don't write checks for like $2,000 for people off the street because we think that doesn't help people, right? And yet, people that just, just keep—like, we have—we're like, we're, what are we going to do with all this money? Like, this money's for the poor. We've got more money than is even being asked for. People in this church take care of the poor people in this church. So when people in our church lose their jobs, what I often find is, is that people in their small group brought them food, or somebody that they knew in the church gave them money without going through the church. So that even our poor are taken care of by their brothers and sisters before they come to the pastors and elders. Right? And so what we've actually done with some of that money is we said, look, we, we, we don't, we can't spend all of this on the, on the people that are coming in here. We need it. We'll take some of this and we'll spend it on poor kids in reading and math summer programs and things like that. So those kids never come to us to help them fi fix a light bill. We'll, we'll spend the money on poor kids so they can stay in school and so that they can be mentored in, in, by people who preach the gospel so that they can stay in school and they can make it, right? And maybe— and maybe that will be more effective in the long run for some of them. And I have never been part of a church in my life that had too much benevolence money and had to figure out how to invest it. And that encourages me. Because most people, they'll give at church because the plate goes around. And they'll be like, oh yeah, I'll give. And they'll give—most churches, they'll give out of their wallet. They'll, they'll open their wallet. They'll pick something in the middle. And they'll throw it in there, and that's giving. And th no, this is, people are already giving in the plate when it goes around, but they're taking out an envelope, and they're saying, this is for the poor, and I'm going to give an additional amount, and that's tens of thousands of dollars, and we're investing it in the poor of our community for the gospel and for the good of their lives. And you probably don't even know that's happening. And you maybe give in benevolence, but you think that you're one of like four people, and we get like 60 bucks each week. And don't give less. <laughs> because we're being very careful with every dollar. We want to make sure every dollar is invested. Like, we want to be your heaven financial planners. So, so like, I, your divine 401k, I think we're managing well, you know? Um, but, but I want you to know that the people sitting next to you are generous too. Um, I've seen this in our global ministries. More than 30 ministries globally, many of whom are in countries where they are not welcomed by the government, but are often very welcomed by the people. Whether it's de-evangelized Europe, whether it's Muslim-majority countries, whether it's 
large Asian communist countries, whether it's, or whether it's some of our college campuses that are getting increasingly hostile to evangelism in college groups. I've seen it in just the creation of art, the writing of worship songs, the, the children's album, Pillars album they did last year. And I don't know if you were at here last week for The Greatest Story Ever Told, but like I can't get my kids to shut that CD up. And it's not even my, my children's age kids, it's my teenagers. They keep going back to the axe rap. And they like, they're, and like my little Ford Ranger with five of them in it, like it gets loud in there, you know. Um, I can see that in the interest of spiritual teaching. Listen, you, could, you can just about count on one hand the number of churches in America that are growing where the sermons are over 40 minutes. Okay? That's, that's a major inhibitor to growth. Okay? And yet, um, people ask—I have pastors, and they're just incredulous. They're like, so how do you preach? I was like, yeah, give or take 50 minutes, 110 minutes. I just, and, <laughs> and, and they're like— really? And like, you can keep the lights on? I was like, yeah, the church is growing. It's been growing for eight years. And they're like, what? I'm like, I was like, listen, sometimes I'm funny. Most of my people just love Jesus and they'll wait for it. You know, like, I don't know what to tell you. I, they just, people are, people want to hear the Bible preached and then they do it. And it's, um, it's a beautiful thing. Don't quit complicating your ministry. Preach the Bible at them, you know, and and I'm, and as a pastor, I'm really encouraged by that because not only do you like tolerate this and stay in your seat, but like I look at your faces while I'm preaching. And yeah, like, yeah, some of you are drifting and thinking about like groceries or fiddling with your nails. But for the most part, what I see is interest. Especially when I'm preaching the Bible and the gospel itself and directly how it applies. You pay attention more. See, most churches, it's like, okay, I'm going to tell you five stories and then— I'm going to sneak in a little idea about God, and hopefully you won't immediately stop paying attention. But that's not what I see when I'm up here. When I, when I start telling a few too many jokes, people are kind of like, all right, come on. You know, you know. Britt actually does it. She goes like this. So, but, um, but I find when, I, it's when I'm preaching the Bible is when people get more engaged. And that is so—you guys, that is so rare. It's so rare. Um, and then la let me just say this one last thing before I close with five points. Um, just three. Uh, is that I also see people embracing their real lives on a deeper gospel level. People embracing their work as, an, as a divine exploitation of their strength, not some—that people are stealing their lives from them, and, and moms embracing like that— like they're nursing right now, like in their, like that this baby is taking control of their lives or that they're taking, instead of saying, oh, I wish I could do more leisure. I wish I could watch more TV or burying themselves in some other appetite enhancing but soul destroying diversion where they say, no, my work is a good thing. My, my loves for my friends is a good thing. My, being part of the normal life of the church, volunteering with children and telling them about Cain and Abel is, is a fundamental good, and I'm embracing it with joy. And, and the minute that happens, people's lives change. So let's end with this. How do you, how do you respond to this? And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to get very specific about exactly how to respond to this, and that will be the whole sermon. But I want to say three things about this. What do you do if you feel like there is some spiritual success in your life? Maybe just personally with you, maybe the church you're a part of. 
What do you do? Right? We talked about this with our elders and staff, and the first thing that either Kent or Mark Finley said, I can't remember, said was, we need a renewal and a revival of humility. Step number one. Step number one is a renewal and a revival of humility. Because the minute you feel like you're being successful, the first thing that runs in is pride, right? We're, yeah, we're like, you know, in the, in the church race, we're third in Madison, right? Well, yeah. No, we aren't, okay? Because we're not, we're not in the business of beating other churches. We're in the business of directing the human soul to God through Christ. Which means we're in competition with the news media and the universities and the malls and the restaurants and everything. Everything that competes for the human heart is in our market. And every human heart is our goal. And we are not third in market share. We're like 50,000th in market share. We are a startup and we need to be hungry. Right? So there's no room for pride. Because we're still at the bottom of our league. Right? But, but there are good things. There are good things. And so what immediately needs to come in if we're not going to be, if we're not going to be destroyed by pride is thankfulness. Because whenever you have an experience of anything like success on any level in any way, either pride or thankfulness will enter into your heart. And so if you are not thankful, you will be proud. Because you remember, see, success isn't a feeling. You don't feel success. If you say, well, I feel successful, that's because you're arrogant. Right? Because pride has come along with success. And that's how pride hides. It just calls itself the feeling of success, which is a lie. It's pride. Because if, because otherwise you would say, I'm so thankful. Because like, I explained how a lot of the good stuff that's happened, like I couldn't have predicted. And I, we couldn't have made happen ourselves. Us being faithful came in God's providence in relationship to other people who were being faithful. These things wove together in strange providences and produced what we have in front of us, which should evoke thankfulness to God in praise, because he is the one making this happen. He is the one at work in us, because what is the greatest thing any Christian could know? It's not that you're successful. The greatest thing any Christian could possibly know is that God is within you and at work within you, that there's real faith, that the Holy Spirit is wrought inside of you, and so God is at work, and like when the fruit of godliness happens, that testifies that there's really something going on in us. That we as a church can say, I think God is working. And so we can just be thankful and be happy. And that's the best antidote to pride. And the last is that we engage in humility by trembling. You see, humility is often misunderstood as as being deferential towards other people's views. And a lot of churches act like they're being humble when they're actually engaging in unfaithfulness. And there's this place in the book of Isaiah where God makes this very clear. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you're going to build for me? And where's my resting place going to be? My hands made all of this, right? You can't make a house for God. You can't make a dwelling for him, right? And then he says, 
but this is the one to whom I will look. Which, that ought to get your attention. In all the earth, there's one person that God is going to look to. His eyes will be on, that they will be the dwelling of his attention. It's the closest thing you can make for a dwelling of God. He says this, this is who, this is who I look to in all the earth. The one who is humble in heart, and so that that gets the explanation it requires, and who trembles at my word. You see, in God's eyes, humility is not acquiescing to the unfaithful teachings of your neighbor. In God's eyes, humility is trembling at what he has said and believing what he has said and not even giving deference to yourself (laughs) and the stuff you want to believe instead. That's where humility begins. And then you figure out how to love your neighbor without being unfaithful to the truth of God and his word because you tremble at that truth and you will be faithful to it. And so then you sort it out. How to be humble with your neighbor too. But it starts with trembling at the word of God and being as faithful as you know how to be. And I think, I'll get some more specifics in two weeks, but I think as a church, if we allow ourselves to feel encouraged about these good things, if we allow humility to happen, if we engage in thankfulness for it, because we see the activity of God in our midst, and if we reorient our fundamentals again and say, I need to remember right now to start with being faithful to God, to get free of worldliness, to know that God has given me everything I need for life and godliness. And so I will make, and I will spend my days making every effort possible to add to my faith knowledge, and to knowledge goodness, and to goodness self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness self-control, or to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Because there's a promise that goes along with those. If we as a church, or if you and I individually, possess them in increasing measure, they will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for eight years of relative good times. We thank you that We've been able to experience a time together where you've done good things in our midst, our midst. But we also recognize that we're sort of in a place where we could be a church that has done good things and is about to decline because of pride and a lack of any hunger and fervor for the gospel among us. Um, Or we could be people who are renewed again in the fundamentals of what it means to follow you deeply. We pray, God, that you'd make us a people hungry for substance, for godliness, hungry to see our neighbors and people in our city know you deeply, people hungry to sacrifice for the good of others and real love, people who seek to add to our faith everything required for godliness, but yet people who are thankful and who realize every moment that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Amen.